Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbatihi wa man wala. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barak alayhi fil awaleen wa fil akhireen wa fil mali al-a'la ya rabbil alameen. So a few people are asking me like where can they take courses online or especially for young people. So alhamdulillah we are about to launch uh, something called Swiss which is Suhaib Web Institute for the Sacred Sciences inshallah this spring which has an entire uh, series uh, curriculum of courses based on the West African Ezhari system in English. Uh, videos, quizzes, books, we, all the books that we have are written for the most part in-house. Uh, we translate like a classical text. And then my blessing to be the Snapchat Imam, uh, Alhamdulillah, as they like to call me, I was able to take a lot of the questions from these brilliant young American Muslims and then plug those back into these texts. So if you're interested and you want to sign up on our email list, you can go to suhaibweb.com. Maybe some of you remember the old days was suhaibweb.com. Uh, you can go there, just put your email address, inshallah. And once we're ready to launch the beta version, uh, inshallah, we'll be reaching out to you, uh, inshallah ta'ala. And one of those courses that we teach is tafsir, uh, especially geared towards, um, you know, the English-speaking audience. The, the challenge of education in Islam in America is that education tends to get confused with entertainment. And we don't have, for example, like a duksi in English, where you take someone from Ariftiya, like you take them through the basic ulum, or if you're from Pakistan or India, like we don't have the equivalent of like Dars Nizami. So what happens is, is except for places, you know, like Zaytunas, of course, a university, uh, Al-Maghrib is doing some great work, uh, Qalam Institute in Dallas, Texas, Taysir Seminary is doing great work. But inside our homes, and we know the challenge, I have children uh, overseas, but in, when they were here in this country, Sunday school can be sometimes extremely frustrating, especially if your children aren't from the dominant racial uh, makeup of a community, to be honest with you. If they're an ethnic minority, sometimes Sunday school can be a problem. Uh, and reinforce uh, some things that are very un-Islamic. So we challenged ourselves at Swiss to create an opportunity for people to learn at home and to learn on the road, but then that will follow up with them and make sure that they're like accomplishing a curriculum so it's organized. So you can sign up uh, at suhaibweb.com. And one of the classes, as we mentioned, is tafsir, and one of the lessons or series in that curriculum is tafsir of Sultul Hujurat. Uh, Surah Hujarat is the 49th chapter of the Quran. And the way that I'm going to do this is for each verse I put like four points. So if you're taking notes, mashallah, I see a lot of people, the brother taking notes and sisters, alhamdulillah. Um, so I'll say for this verse there's four points. So like it'll help you, those people watching on Facebook Live also, uh, they can write, you know, those four points. And then when you have questions, inshallah, will help you organize your questions better. And I'm sure there's things I will forget to say and mistakes that I'll make. It's normal. Everybody makes mistakes, alhamdulillah. So the first verse, there will be four points that I'll discuss, inshallah. But before we jump into it, let's talk about the chapter itself. Surah Hujarat, uh, Imam Al-Qurtubi says, Which means that the scholars of Qur'an agree that this chapter was sent in Medina. It was revealed in Medina. And when we say something was revealed in Medina or Mecca, this is not what we call i'tibar makani. It doesn't mean that it was revealed in the city of Mecca only. 
the Meccan period, it could have been outside of Mecca. But it was while the Prophet ﷺ was what? In Mecca. Once he's in Medina, whatever is revealed to him, وسلم, whether it's in Medina or whether it's in Mecca, it is considered Medani. So I say, I'tibar zamani la makani. Which means like, when we use this terminology, it's referring to a time period, not the actual place. Everybody understand? So Mecca is before what? Hijrah. Madani is what? Regardless of where it was revealed. So Surah Hujurat is Madaniya. Many ulama said that Surah Hujurat was sent in the last year of the Prophet's life. In Medina. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So that means that this chapter is like encapsulating like a lot of things that have happened. Why do you as an audience think that a chapter that's dealing with character was like one of the last things sent to the Prophet in his community? Why is that important? Why would a chapter that its main focus is character, how we interact with faith and people and ourselves, why would something on akhlaq and adab be sent towards the end of the prophecy of Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Why? You can talk, man. Don't worry. Right, so they're about to spread this religion across the globe. Kuntum khayra ummatin li nas. And the best way to impact people is to be what? It's to be a person of sincerity and fidelity. To be a person of great character. MashaAllah. And also the challenges that they are about to encounter. The greatest of them being the death of the Prophet wasallam, Are going to put tremendous pressure upon them. And that pressure will be dealt with with good character. Abdurrahman ibn Qasim is one of the greatest students of Imam Malik ibn Anas. And Abdurrahman ibn Qasim, he said, I studied with Imam Malik for 20 years. Now people, they want to study in a weekend course. SubhanAllah. Abdurrahman ibn Qasim, 20 sana, 20 years. And he said, 18 of those years, I learned character. SubhanAllah. In two of those years, I learned knowledge. And he said, I wish I could change those last two years to character. And we know Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, Aqrabukum ilayya yawm al-qiyamah ahsanukum khuluqan. That the closest of you to me in the hereafter will be those who have good character. Would we rather have a knowledgeable fasiq Someone that has knowledge but has poor character, or someone who has minimal knowledge but incredible character. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbali said, I would rather accompany a sinner who has good character than a saint who doesn't. Allah. So now when we talk about knowledge and learning knowledge in America, do we understand that as Imam al-Maqdisi mentioned 
in his explanation of Ghazali's Ihya that knowledge and good character in the time of the Salaf were synonyms. You don't learn and not have good character. You learn and you have good character. And that's why the Prophet said when he was asked, what are the things that will take people to paradise? He said, Taqwallah wa husnu khuluq is, is dutiful, being dutiful to God and having good character. Our teacher from Senegal used to say this beautiful poem because a lot of people, they learn knowledge, you know, they become knowledgeable, but they think that means that they can be rude and harsh. They assume that that means they can like look down on the people who don't know. That's, the ba that's a bad attitude, man. So our teacher used to say to us, used to say, knowledge is like rain and character is the soil. If the earth is corrupted, the blessing of the rain is gone. Meaning, if you don't have good character, it doesn't matter how much you learn, man. Like the character is not there. Iblisu a'lam al-ardi qatibatan. Iblis, he knows more than most people. But everybody curses Iblis. His knowledge didn't help him. So this character forces us to really think about our relationship with good character and how we carry ourselves. So the first verse, there'll be four issues that we'll talk about, inshallah. Allah says, Allah says, O you who believe, لا تقدموا بين يديه الله ورسوله واتقوا الله إن الله سميع عليم. Which means believers, O oh believers, do not put forward in the presence of Allah and His Messenger and be dutiful to Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hears and knows all things. And you notice I said, do not put forward. It's a transitive verb. It, it's intransitive. It demands an object, but the object is not mentioned in Arabic. We'll talk about that inshallah. So there's actually five things that we're going to talk about in this verse. The first, the Quran is an everlasting miracle. We hear it all the time. Growing up, man, the Quran is an everlasting miracle. We love pleiatitudes. The Muslim community, we love slogans, man. We love slogans. It's all about the youth. Where's the youth leadership? I don't know. You know, we're not, you know, we believe in like social equality. You know, black folks lead nothing. No converts lead nothing. What does that mean? That means we're hypocrites. Islam brought peace to women. Where's the women leadership? We're, we're profound at making statements that we don't hold ourselves accountable to. But the Prophet they said he was sahib al-samt. He was quiet, man, he didn't talk a lot. When he spoke, he, he meant what he said. And he said what he meant. But we hear that one, that's, that's one that we hear a lot. Quran is an everlasting miracle. And you ask people, how? I don't know, it's just an everlasting miracle, man, circular logic. That's what I heard. I heard somebody say it must be an everlasting miracle. I mean, when you think about it, the claim that something is an everlasting miracle, that's bold, man. Like, that's, that's bold. That's profound. That's bravery. So this verse, 
it, it shows us two things. The Quran has an everlasting miracle, and the other thing that we hear is the Quran is relevant. The Quran brings benefit to any situation, any generation, any ethnicity, any group of people. The Quran has something to offer. How? I would challenge that deliberately many American Muslims are not exploring how Islam and the Quran, as Shatabi mentioned earlier, is going to bring benefit to the society around us. We do not have a deliberate strategy rooted in that thinking. There's reasons for that. We're on defense mode right now, man. Protect yourself at all times. These Islamophobes don't play. But there also has to be an effort to push ourselves to think within the context of what's going on in America. So for example, Eid. What's the relationship between Hajj and efforts to suppress voter participation in America? I want us to think about that stuff. Hajj is open to all people. If people can have a voice with God, they should all have a voice at the voter box. Bam. That's how we need to think. Hajj commands us not to cut down trees and pollute the land. Where's our position on environmental resilience? Why do we have plastic bottles in our massage? Where's our position? Where's the Black Lives Matter sign in front of the mosque? If Hajj teaches truly to think about equality and social justice, so many things that could come out of that. The hyper-prison system in this country Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet said, loves to free people more in the days of Arafah than any other day. Freedom, man. Free them from hell. If free people from hell is a blessing, then what about the hell of an unjust prison system that is now engaged in what Vincent Lloyd calls hyper-incarceration? And when 70% of incarcerated people are people of color in this country, where's our position calibrated by the justice of Hajj to stand in the name of justice and prophetic values and denounce these things. Now, nah, man, we're busy arguing about what this sheikh said 400 years ago. And is this sheikh Ahlul Bidah? And did Suhaib say gay marriage is halal? Whoever sent those emails in your community that I said that, if you don't come and ask my forgiveness, I'm going to plead with Allah to give me your good deeds in the hereafter. I swear to God. We're bold on email, but we're not strong enough to face people to their face. I know about all that stuff, man. I got snitches, alhamdulillah. No, I got people who were upset by that. But that's how we are as Muslims, man. We're munafiqeen, we're hypocrites. We'll kill each other before we can do something good for people. So we won't think about living for now, but we'll think about living for the past. Now I'm asking, how is the Qur'an an everlasting miracle? And how does the Qur'an say relevant to us? We find it in the first verse in one statement. La tuqaddimu. The word tuqaddim means to put forward. It's a verb that demands an object. And this happens all the time in the Qur'an. Pay attention, this is really cool. It's dope. The Qur'an very rarely mentions the object of verbs. When talking about social issues. Why? 
Why is the Quran what Ibn Hazm called al-maskutu anha? Why is the Quran silent? And, and we learn this in community organizing, right? There's a very powerful principle in community organizing. Step up and then what? Step back. No one to be quiet. Quiet as a strategy. Silence as a strategy. So the Quran employs a strategy that shows us on this issue, the Quran stayed silent. There's a term for that in theology. Al-maskutu anha. Mafish khitab. The Quran didn't address it. Why would the Quran not address something? Number one, to tell us that that thing is permissible. Because what is maskut anha? Sara ibahan. What is the Quran is usually silent about is considered permissible, unless of course scholars, like for example, marijuana, will come in and say, hey, you know, based on our understanding as ulama, what we've extracted from the Quran and Sunnah, these things are forbidden. So let's not go crazy. Brother come home and tells mom, Quran is silent on this and silent on that. Oh, okay, alhamdulillah. No, man, relax. And number two, to engage the reader, to make the reader think. So, la tuqaddimu, don't put forward what? Each and every one of us in this room, we have our own challenges, man. So on social issues, the objects of verbs are silent because the objects of verbs change over time. Pay attention to the point. So back in the days, out in Oklahoma, in Tonkawa, if I heard a ringing noise, my grandma would say, William, answer the what? Go answer that phone. Nowadays, if you hear a noise, answer that iPhone. The objects change. Because people change. So we learn something now about the depth of the Qur'an. That the objects of verbs are going to change over time. So the Qur'an stays silent on those objects sometimes. So that it stays what to each community that's reading it? Relevant. Now you saw something. So now we see how the Qur'an stays relevant to every situation, every community, every time, every place. By staying silent. And letting the reader, and that's why I believe the translation should say, La tuqaddimu, insert garbage here. Insert personal struggle here. So, La tuqaddimu, bluntan. Don't put a blunt in front of Allah and His Messenger. La tuqaddimu, don't put what? Looking at pornography in front of Allah and His Messenger. La tuqaddimu, abusing your spouse in front of Allah and His Messenger. Everybody understand what just happened? So the Quran is silent so that the reader will do what? Insert their own context into the Quran. So now we just answered one question. How does the Quran stay relevant? How is it an everlasting miracle? By staying silent on issues that change over time so that the community will continue to turn to revelation for guidance within the context of their lives. That's powerful. So each and every one of us now has an opportunity to have a relationship with the Qur'an. So Allah says, لَا تُقَدِّمُوا What does it mean to put forward in front of Allah and His Messenger? Al-Qurtubi says, أَيَّ شَيْءٍ يُخَالِفُ أَمْرِهِ وَنَهِي 
to put something in front of the commands of God or his messenger. To put something in front of the commands of God and his messenger. So that could be a qawd al-nafs. My heart's telling me, you know, I don't want to pray, man. I'm tired. So I put that in front of the order of God and his messenger. Maybe I'm abusive to family members, my children. You know, we talk about respecting parents. We need to talk also about respecting our kids, man. Once I had a, a brother come to me and he said, I don't know why my son keeps telling his wife to shut up, man. I said, why? Oh, the Bilal, why does he do that? So then his son came, we met, and his son said, my whole life I saw my father tell my mom to shut up. Pot calling the kettle black, man. So if I'm abusing anyone in my home, that's putting something in front of Allah and his messenger. If I'm backbiting people, put that in front of Allah and his messenger. So that's why most ulama say, لا تقدموا قولا ولا فعلا Like don't put any type of statement or action in front of God and His Messenger. And that happens in two situations that we need to be aware of. Number one is in the face of a clear command or prohibition. And those are a minority of religious texts are what we call nas. You know, in Pakistan and in India, you know, when people get married and they put them on top of the, the throne, that's called munassa in Arabic. Because in, before the time of Islam, you know, if you didn't see who the bride or groom was and you proposed to them, you'd start a big fight at the party. You know, like imagine if you didn't see who the groom was and you're like, mom, I really saw this really cute guy. Can you go talk to him? And then your mom goes and talks to his mom and she's like, that's the groom. It's gonna, it's gonna be like a Tyler Perry movie in there, man. It's gonna go crazy, right? So they would put people up on these chairs. The reason for that is so you know who's married. In Sharia, we have a verse of Quran or Hadith which is called Nas in Usul al-Fiqh because it sticks out. It sticks out like that sticks out from the same word. That's why the top of a mountain is called Nas al-Jabal. Right, because it's the top of the mountain, the peaks of the mountain here you see in this beautiful area. So that is a verse of Qur'an or hadith of the Prophet لا يحتمل التأويل Ibn Hajib al-Maliki says that does not accept interpretation like no one needs to try to unpack what it means no one needs to try to like when Allah says you know pray five times like what is five? five is five man that's called nas it's rare and the Prophet when he would express something in a very explicit way it's called nas it's rare those are things which we don't go against. They represent around 3% of the total body of religious texts, by the way. 3%. The second are those things for which either there's a disagreement on what the Prophet of the Qur'an means, or the Qur'an and the Hadith are silent. So the difference of meaning. So for example, the Prophet said, Authentic hadith, Sayyidina Nabi said, there's no prayer for the neighbor of the mosque except in the mosque. The Hanabila, because of the structure of Arabic, they said, لا صلاة مقبولة لجار المسجد إلا في المسجد. Sadat al-Hanabila, they said what it means is, no prayer is accepted by a person who lives next to the mosque, who doesn't pray in the mosque. 
That's why when you go to Saudi Arabia, what happens? When the Adhan is called, what happens? Everything shuts down. But when you go to Senegal, Mauritania, Morocco, the majority of the Muslim world who are not Hanabila, when the Adhan is called, they don't shut stuff down. Malaysia, Turkey, because the majority of the scholars said, no, that's not what the hadith means. What it means is that la salata kamila li al-masjid ila fil-masjid. That does, you're not going to get the complete reward if you don't pray in the mosque. That difference is allowed. No one can come and tell someone you're wrong or you're wrong or you're out of Islam or this is not acceptable. That's called a khilaf which is acceptable. So the difference of a meaning, we go to scholars. That's what scholars are there for. That's why Ibn Rushdi says, Al-Hukum Bayan Al-Ghumud. Right, the opinion of a scholar is clarifying something that's ambiguous. Lifting the fog. So we go to scholars, we ask them, hey, what does this mean? What does that mean? Can I mortgage a house? Can I not mortgage a house? Can I eat McDonald's? Not eat McDonald's? Music, whatever. Music, meet mortgages. That's what we're all about. Right, Eminem, new album. Eminem, every day we got a new album. Meet and mortgages. But the point is, those are issues which, we know there's dispensation among scholars when we go to scholars. So my, my ability not to put something in front of God and His Messenger is to consult ulama. Why the Quran says, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ ذِكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُوا hey, Ask the scholars if you don't know. Now we don't know. There's no verse, there's no hadith. Or there's a verse in hadith which the meaning is debatable. So I'm going to ask. So we say put forward in front of God and His Messenger. That means number one, in the face of an explicit text, which is rare. And number two, in the face of a text whose meaning is debated, I don't seek religious guidance. I don't consult with the imam, for example. I don't ask online. And I tell imams online especially, look man, everything can be about money. People have to have access to you. People have to be able to engage you and ask questions and probe. It's very important because our community, especially the American community, which I live in now, young people are, are very intelligent, alhamdulillah. And they're very passionate about their religion, man. And they're very passionate about social justice issues. So they're trying to craft religious meaning in a Trump presidency. You've got to have access to people. And the third we said is that a text doesn't exist. For example, T-cells. I'm supposed to be at the North American Fiqh Council meeting this moment right now, but I couldn't go. Alhamdulillah, I'm here. But the issues that those great scholars are tackling and, and women scholars are tackling are, are primarily issues for which there is no verse of Qur'an or, or statement of Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So in those three situations, if I don't obey Allah and His Messenger, Fardu'ain, which most of us learn, I don't consult scholars in the face of multiple meanings on texts or on issues that seem to have a religious impact like T-cells or organ donation or other things now. Um, environmental resilience is going to be up on the, on the table soon. I don't consult people who have ill. That's what it means to qaddim bayni The third thing is, why was this verse sent? Uh, this verse was sent, there are six opinions. We're not going to go through all six. We're going to mention the, 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 the dominant opinion. 
is that Sayyidina Abu Bakr or Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhuma, Banu Tamim came to Medina. Banu Tamim are interesting people. About 70 people came to Medina. They're new Muslims. Some narrations say 19 people came to Medina. And they needed a leader. So the Prophet وسلم, he asked Abu Bakr and he asked Umar, who should be the leader? Sayyidina Abu Bakr said, Al-Aqra, Al-Qa'qa, Ibn Ma'bad, Al-Qa'qa. His name was Qa'qa. What a name, man. You know that brother was like hard, man. It's a rapper named like Qa'qa. You know, I'm good. I'm not getting in this cipher. You win. Al-Qa'qa, Ibn Ma'bad. And Al-Qa'qa is going to come back later in the chapter, by the way. Sayyidina Umar, he said, La, Al-Aqra ibn Habis. Another guy's name was Aqra. And then Sayyidina Umar, he said to Abu Bakr, Man, you always say stuff just to diff with me. Ma hada illa khilafi. You only said that so that you could like, you could have an opinion different than mine. It's an authentic narration. Then Abu Bakr said, no, wallahi, I'm just saying how I feel. And they began to argue. And they began to debate. And they raised their voices in front of the Messenger of Allah. They began to yell. So Allah says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu la tuqaddimu bayni yidayhi lahi wa rasoolihi wa taqullaha inna allaha samiyun alim. Second opinion is that on Eid day, there was a group of companions <laughs> who slaughtered their meat before Salah. <laughs> they wanted to eat, man. <laughs> so they went before Allah and His Messenger. Like literally, they slaughtered before Salat al-Eid. But we learned something from this verse. Because learning the reasons why verses for sin were sent is very important. One of our teachers used to say in Azhar, Ma'rifatu asbabi nuzura fi'atu li kulli haraj. That knowing why verses were sent removes all problems for you in understanding like how to apply the verse and how to think about the verse. But we learned something very, very important here. Why doesn't the verse mention them by name? Ya Abu Bakr, Ya Umar, la tuqaddima. Why does it mention people by name? Very rarely in the Quran and in this hadith of Sayyidina Nabi وسلم, when people are rebuked for evil that they've done if it doesn't harm others okay, if it's within their personal sphere very rarely are they called out why not? Ya Abdullah ibn Umar, fulan. Oh, Abdullah ibn Umar, don't be like such and such guy, man. He used to pray at night and now he stopped praying. The Prophet doesn't say his name. Here, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu. And why does it call them believers? Believers don't do this. Number one is because, you know, you call people out, it can be counterproductive. If people are harming other people, abusing other people, that's a different scenario. And number two is, it would limit 
the application of that verse to that situation. We have a very important axiom in tafsir. You should write this down. It says, Al-ibratu concern is given for the generality of the verse. Not with the reason, for the reason the verse was sent, meaning we don't restrict that only to that situation. But any other situation that we find similar to that, we, we apply this verse. And that's why uh, we see something unique. So it's actually five points, sorry. In the Arabic language, Baini day means to be in front of. Now you guys are Baini day. Wana Baina Yadaykum. This is Baini day to be physically in front of each other. Why, why would this verse describe this like awareness and closeness with Allah and the Messenger of Allah in this way? It doesn't say, In the Allahi wa Rasulihi. It says, Baini Yadayhi Allahi wa Rasulihi. As though like we are right in front of God. Because Allah sees all things. And Allah hears all things. That's why the end of the verse says, Inna Allaha Sami'un Alim. So that we learn from that the importance of a quality called muraqaba, ihsan, to worship Allah as though you see him, even though you can't see him. But with the messenger of Allah. Alayhi salatu wassalam. He's not here right now with us, but his teachings are here. The last point is Allah says that he hears and he sees. We know that hearing and seeing are for what's called sifat al-ma'ani. We believe that there's like 20-something obligations that we believe about God. And 20 that we deny about God. Around 44 total. As-sama' wal-basar are from what are called in theology sifat al-ma'ani. The qualities of meaning. Because Islamic theology tries to do something which is absolutely incredible. It reinforces Allah's transcendence but also reinforces his nearness to us but we have a rule in theology it's very easy man whenever we come across an attribute of God that describes a physical act of God using terminology that we understand in our own physical world, like I hear you hear I see we say that Allah hears and sees We say, وَكُلُّ نَصٍ أَوْهَمَ تَشْبِيهَا In this book called Jawhara Tawheed, Jawhara Tawheed, it's like a great book to study in Aqeerah. It says, any text, وَكُلُّ نَصٍ You know Nas, any text, أَوْهَمَ تَشْبِيهَا Which brings within it qualities that you may think, I hear, God hears, I have a hand, God has a hand, God sees, I see. كُلُّ نَصٍ أَوْهَمَ تَشْبِيهَا Ahl-Sunnah, the majority of Ahl-Sunnah say that those kind of texts we have to interpret them in a way that preserves Allah's transcendence. So Allah hears and knows 
and sees, but not like how we hear and know and see. وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدٍ so any verse of Qur'an, any hadith of the Prophet that uses verbs or nouns that describe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in ways that we would think are similar to physical, human qualities, awilu. Our scholars said you have to interpret that in a way that preserves Allah's transcendence. وَلَمْ يَكُلَّهُ This is a very important principle, man. And people get confused in this. So one of our teachers used to say, كُلُّ مَا خَطَرَ فِي الْبَالِ فَعَلَى اللَّهِ مُحَالٍ Anything that you think God is like, that's impossible. Because لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ So when Allah says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ That's not like how we hear, it's not how we see. It's beyond physical laws. Beyond limitations. Imam Marzuki says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in opposition to anything in creation, in likeness, or in equal. Everybody understand? Any questions about the first verse before we move on? Everybody's like, whoa. We're gonna, you know, we want to teach people, man. Sometimes, one time I was teaching a class, this girl came to me, she's like, I don't know any of this stuff. I said, well, did you come to learn what you already know? Like, so you can like feed your ego? The other reaction is, I never heard that before. So what? Adam We have an axiom in Islamic studies that said, just because someone doesn't know something doesn't mean they're right. Adam Adam. They say, like, not knowing something doesn't mean it's not known. It just means I don't know it. But because I don't know it doesn't mean it's not right. We can't be selfish and be students. It's very difficult. So Allah says, Ya ayyuhaladina amanu, oh, you believe? We talked about the following. La tuqaddimu, the everlasting miracle, the constant application of the Quran. Bayni wa rasulihi. What does that mean to go against the nas and to not consult scholars? in the face of texts which are confusing to us, not in their nature, right? Or their meanings are, 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 are quite a few. Or in the face of the absence of a text. Why As though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I live as though I'm in front of God. And His Messenger through His teachings, Allah, we'll talk about taqwa in a minute. Inna Allah sami'un alim. What are called sifat al-khabariyya. What are the principles of theology that inform how we should look at these kind of attributes? Wukullu nasin awhama tashbiha awilu awfawid dunum tanziha. Any verse of Quran or hadith of the Prophet that may cause you to fall into likening God to his creation, avoid it, like interpret it in a way, avoid that similarity and interpret it in a way that preserves Allah's transcendence. وَلِلَّهِ مَثَلُ الْأَعْلَى Any questions, inshallah? Sure.
Yeah, so I gave a simple example. So first and foremost, I have a problem with people who are, he's asking about the Qur'an as an everlasting miracle. Profoundly, it's going to be an everlasting miracle in its language, in its logic, like the example I gave earlier. But to turn the Qur'an into a book of science is a problem. Qur'an is not a book of science. This was a reaction to post-colonial white supremacy, man. That we have to outdo the white man in his sciences with our book. And as we know, why is that a problem? Because science is an evolving story. 30 years ago, they told you don't eat eggs. Now they're telling you what? Eat eggs. That doesn't mean that we might not find universal principles that are mentioned in the Quran about things, but Ash-Shatibi al-Maliki says, we have to be very, very careful about trying to extend the Qur'an in ways in which it did not intend to be extended. Like, it's going to give universal guidance on issues. But it's not going to give us like the answer to nuclear fission. That's not, that's not right. But it left those things to human beings to live in according to general universal principles of goodness. The, the, the second issue with science is, why is science God? Like, why do I have to every, and I'm saying this respectfully. But science, a naturalistic view of the world is not necessarily helpful or healthy or correct. Pluto was a planet when I was in fifth grade. Now it's not. But I should respect science as a knowledge, as something that Islam encourages me to engage, something that I benefit from, something that I think about. But I don't make it haq on everything. There are aspects of science, yes, they're truth. Earth is round, I believe that. Sorry Kyrie Irving, I'm a Celtics fan, that's how it is. But our engagement in, in that discussion sometimes I find is problematic because you find people that want to find science in the Qur'an and they don't know the language of the Qur'an. Well, how are you going to extract meanings if you don't understand the meanings that you're thinking about, then what becomes now the interpretive voice? Is it the language of the Qur'an that you don't know or the constructions that you're bringing to the Qur'an that you're trying to affirm? What becomes the murajjih? Whereas I believe we should come to the Qur'an with open hearts and I believe alhamdulillah that the Qur'an in general doesn't contradict science, the potential of science, but I have a problem with being scientific or scientifism. That's something that concerns me. So I would encourage people who want to find the miracle of the Qur'an, study it. You may see something I don't see. You, you may find a greater meaning than I could have ever uncovered because you're gifted in ways that I'm not gifted. Any other questions about the first verse? Before we move on. Alhamdulillah. The second verse, but I just want to share a statement also with you that I, I, I jotted down about the being in front of God and His Messenger. Al-Qadi Abu Bakr ibn Arabi, he said, Al-Qadi Abu Bakr ibn Arabi was a great scholar, great Maliki jurist. He says, Hurmatun Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mayitan kuhurmatihi hayyan. He said, the respect and etiquette that we should have with the Prophet 
now that he's dead, should be that of the respect and etiquette that people had with the Prophet when he was alive. وَكَلَامُهُ الْمَأْثُورُ بَعْدَ مَوْتِهِ فِي الرَّفْعَةِ مِثُوْ كَلَامِهِ الْمَسْمُعَ مِنْ لَفْظِهِ And he said, the statements now that have been authenticated and understood to have authentically come back to us from the Prophet are as though he's actually saying them to us. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. فَإِذَا قُرِئَ كَلَامُهُ وَجَبَ عَلَى كُلِّ حَاضِرٍ أَلَّا يَرْفَعْ سَوْتَ عَلَيْهِ So that's why many scholars of hadith, when we studied hadith with, with them, they would encourage us not, not to talk, not to be loud. Because they considered the narration of authentic hadith as falling under this verse, like not to put anything forward and not to raise our voices, we'll talk about in a minute, above the voice of the Prophet Sallallahu And when hadith are being recited, I shouldn't like turn away from them. It's though I'm turning my back on who? On Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu كَمَا كَانَ يَلْزِمُهُ ذَارِكَ فِي مَجْزِسِهِ عِنْدَ تَلَفُّضِهِ بِهِ As was the etiquette of the Sahaba when the Prophet would teach them. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now that takes us to uh, the, ne the next verse, verse number two. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا O you who believe, لا ترفعوا أصواتكم فوق صوت النبي. Don't raise your voice above the voice of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. ولا تجهروا له بالقول كجهر بعضكم لبعض. And don't call him like you call each other. أن تحبط أعمالكم وأنتم لا تشعرون. Now we understand like Abu Bakr and Omar raising their voices, right? How this verse comes to address them raising their voices in this way in front of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. After this verse was sent, uh, Omar, he began only to whisper in front of the Prophet Sallallahu He until the point that the Prophet would tell him like, man, I can't hear you, man, like, raise your voice. Sayyidina Abu Bakr, when this verse was sent, he said, Wallahi, I'm not going to speak to the Prophet except like I'm whispering to him. Out of etiquette with the Messenger of Allah And that again brings us back to the statement of Al-Qadi Abu Bakr ibn Arabi. How, how would we have this etiquette with the Prophet now? And, and, and this doesn't mean that we can't question our Imams or question our teachers or engage. Uh, I teach a halaqa in NYU. I teach a class at NYU, alhamdulillah, but I have a class that's open to our students. We have 3,000 Muslim students under the leadership of Imam Khalid Latif there, alhamdulillah. And something strange, have, I'm very happy that, that you asked that question a minute ago because I don't believe that religious education should be synonymous with intimidation. Religious education should be synonymous with exploration. For me as a convert, my, my attitude towards my faith is one of exploration. It's an explorative process. 
So when I started teaching there a year ago in, in, in New York City, subhanAllah, I noticed something interesting, these young, young very brilliant people, man. They would raise their hand, in my, in my halaka, you can just interrupt me, like I don't care, I don't consider that a sign of disrespect, it doesn't bother me. If I don't know, I don't know, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Okay, life goes on, alhamdulillah. So, I noticed that whenever they would raise their hand, they would say, sorry. And then ask the question, sorry. Like, and it kept happening to the point that I said, listen, every time you say sorry, you have to buy me one bolti kebab. And they were like, why? Isn't it adab? I said, this is not adab, this is intimidation. Adab is to trust the religious teacher enough that you can argue with them and know that it's not, it's not going to get ugly. Adab is being in a situation where I feel safe enough to ask questions that I need to be answered. The Prophet said, shifari, he said that the remedy for any illness is to ask a question. So no one should take from this verse, la tarfa'u, that it means like, I shouldn't ask questions, you know, I shouldn't engage. La. But what this is talking about is in front of the Messenger of Allah to be raising our voices, and for us, of course, as a metaphor, to put our voices and a position where we drown out the teachings of the Prophet In fact, there are times when being loud is commendable. Who can think of one? In fact, it's sunnah. It's mustahab to be loud. Some would say sunnah kifaiyah. Takbiratan eid. What else? Adhan. You know? The Adhan, the Iqama. Sayyidina Abbas, Ammi Rasulillah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Abbas, you know the Prophet used to utilize him to make announcements to people, like in the farewell pilgrimage, because Abbas had a very loud voice. In fact, one, the Prophet, one time the Prophet ordered him to go and make this announcement, and he yelled it so loud that one of the sheep had a miscarriage. That's how loud his voice was. But the Prophet didn't censor him. It's also okay to be loud, like say for example when the brother asked me the question, if I said, I, I can't hear you. So he, he had to raise his voice, it's okay. Because the goal is now to learn. But here Allah is talking to Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar, لا ترفعوا أصواتكم فوق صوت النبي don't raise your voices in front of the Messenger of Allah. And don't address him in like how you address yourself. Like address him as, Ya Rasulullah, Ya Nabi Allah. That's why in hadith, after this verse was sent, you see the Sahaba, when they would relate hadith on behalf of the Prophet, they say, Qala Rasulullah, Qala Nabiullah. Even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He doesn't address the Prophet by his name in the Quran. Ya ayyuhal muddathir, ya ayyuhal muzzammil, ya ayyuhal nabiyu, ya ayyuhal rusul, ya seen, taha. But he uses the Prophet name when he describes him. Nuzila ala Muhammadin, wa ma Muhammadun illa rasulun. 
Three times only in the Quran the name of Muhammad is used and not in the form of an address but as a description. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. To show adab and ihtiram to Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then Allah says, and if you don't stop this, remember this, all your good deeds are going to be reduced. Does that mean that those people who did that are kuffar? No. It just means that the ajr will be lost, won't be as great. And that takes us to the third principle from the verse. So number one, the status of the Prophet shouldn't raise our voices metaphorically or physically above his, how Allah addresses him. Number two, this adab with him, sallallahu alayhi wa the etiquette with the Prophet, in my nafs, in my desire, are my desires louder than the Prophet? So when I'm choosing to do something wrong, I'm putting now my voice in front of the voice of the Messenger of Allah, and I'm louder, my shahwa is louder than the Messenger of Allah. Number three, the issue of kufr. We need to be very careful. I see Muslims, man, they call people fasics, ahlu bid'ah. This person is a person of kufr. Like we throw these terms around, it's, it's very problematic. We need to understand something, that these kind of terms are very rarely employed by an individual, but were handled by groups of people who would investigate. That's why Imam Abu Hanifa was asked, about you know, someone who may not practice Islam the way I practice it, or someone who may be a little different. And he said, no one leaves Islam except how they entered Islam. Meaning we enter Islam by a choice. We enter Islam, it's very clear. So the same when someone exits Islam, it shouldn't be on like a doubtful issue, as Ibn Taymiyyah mentions, rahimahullah, shouldn't be over a difference of scholars. Something very, very clear. Imam Malik rahimahullah said, if I had 99 reasons to believe someone left Islam and one reason to believe they were Muslim, I'll believe they're Muslim. And then the fourth point, and I made it early, earlier, is that there are times when it's okay to be loud. And we make an exception, just like someone who's left-handed and they need to eat with their left hand or drink with their left hand, if someone is naturally very loud. So if someone's naturally very loud, we should, you know, we shouldn't go off on them, man. And tear their head off. Any questions about this verse before we move on? And then we're going to stop for pizza in a second, inshallah. Pizza with kale. Yes, sir. Yeah, so the tone is something that is going to be based on custom and culture. So I remember the first time I went overseas and I went to a market and I saw these brothers, man, they were yelling at each other. Right? And I, was, I said to my sheikh, like, is there a fight? Someone stole something. He's like, no, no, that's just, that's just how they are, man. They're not fighting. That's just the custom, al-urf. We have an axiom in Islam, al-urfa-muhakkam, like the custom of a people helps us understand these things. So maybe in some cultures, a certain type of tone is acceptable. In other cultures, a certain type of tone isn't acceptable. 
So depending on where we are, that's how we would negotiate that kind of thing, right? So with your children, for example, if you feel that their tone is disrespectful, you'd tell them, hey, you know, our cultural trajectory, this is not acceptable. And talk to the person. And then if they're, someone's from a different culture, have a conversation and say, hey, you know, I'm not trying to tell you not to talk that way, but you may want to be aware that in certain other cultures in the mosque, like, that's seen as like an affront to good behavior. We learn to appreciate each other. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Let's just finish these uh, few verses, inshallah, if you don't mind. And then we can, uh, is pizza here yet? Yeah. Two minutes, mashallah. So quickly, the first verse we went over five issues. The Quran as an everlasting miracle. What does it mean to be forward in front of God and his messenger? Why was the verse sent? Uh, to the, the, the interpretive principle about those attributes of God that are similar, or appear to be similar to creation. And then the last we talked about Ihsan, worshiping Allah as though we see him even though we don't see him. In the second verse, Alhamdulillah, we talked about the status of the Prophet the adab with the Messenger of Allah uh, the ideas of apostasy, the irresponsible usage of that. And then we talked about, of course, um, times when using a loud voice is commendable. And then also issues like where people just have loud voices. It's just how they are. That takes us to the third verse. Allah says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَهُضُّونَ أَصْوَاتَهُمْ عِنْدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ امْتَحَنَ اللَّهُ قُلُوبَهُمْ لِتَقْوَىٰ لَهُمْ مَغْفِرَةٌ وَأَجَرٌ كَرِيمٌ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَأَجَرٌ عَظِيمٌ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Indeed, those who lower their voices, يَهُضُّونَ أَصْوَاتَهُمْ with the Messenger of Allah, there are those who Allah has tested their hearts for taqwa. So those moments of choice. You know, am I going to obey the Messenger of Allah or not? That's imtihan. Imtihan is a test that's given so that someone can evaluate their capacity on an issue. As mentioned by Al-Qurtubi. So, the test of disobedience are reminding me of, hey, where am I spiritually right now? Where am I in my relationship with faith? And that's why Ibn Abbas, may Allah be pleased with both of them, said, That Allah subhanahu wa these tests were a way to purify them and to purify their hearts and build their spiritual capacity. And as a means to put the reverence and fear of God in their heart. That tells us something real quickly, and that we're going to address only one point under this verse. One of the wisdoms of trials and tests and hardship. You know, sometimes you get really religious. Sometimes you come back to God and you think, yeah, mashallah, I got it. And then something from your past pops up. Or a habit that maybe you used to be engaged with comes and like pulls at you. And you start to feel bad. Don't feel bad. That's normal. But that's a test. And we believe that one of the fruits of tests is to purify us. And that's why the word for test is called fitna. 
The word fitna actually is from a word which means to burn something till it's pure. وَهُمْ فِي نَارِ Allah says in the Quran, people are in the hellfire burnt. We say about uh, gold and silver, futin. That they were given fitna till all of the fat and you know, filth, excuse me, and stuff of no value was burned away from that silver and that gold. Sayyidina Ali said that Sayyidina Nabi Sayyidina said, وَإِنَّمَا يُجَرَّبُ الْعَبْدُ الصَّالِحِ كَمَا يُجَرَّبُ الذَّهَبُ الْفِضَّ بِنَارِ that the heart of the believer is tested and purified like gold and silver are tested and purified. So it's a test. Am I going to put myself in front of God? Am I going to put myself in front of the Messenger of Allah? We all struggle with that. None of us got this perfectly, by the way. None of us are prophets. But those choices that we make are a means of achieving taqwa. Taqwa is about a choice. And that takes us to verses 4 and 5, insha'Allah, and then we'll stop for the break. Allah says, Banu Tamim, they came to Medina, 70 of them. It's a lot of people. And they came at night. And there's different narrations. Imam At-Tirmidhi says that Banu Tamim said, you know, let's go see this guy who says he's a prophet, man. These guys were wild. You know, this is like late in Medina. And Banu Tamim is still kind of like, mm, whatever. So Banu Tamim says, you know what? Let's just go see. If he's a prophet, we'll follow him. And if he's not a prophet, we'll just consider him a king. And we'll benefit, we'll find some utility in pledging allegiance to him. So they go to Medina and they're not like the most adab carrying people. You know what I mean? Like they're going <laughs> for agency. And they came in the middle of the night and there's two narrations. One narration says that Al-Qa'qa, Al-Qa'qa ibn Ma'bad, who we mentioned earlier. Al-Qa'qa, who Abu Bakr suggested to be the leader of this tribe, came in front of the Hujurat, the apartments of the Prophet. And if you go to Medina, if you have a good guide with you, we have so many wonderful Imams, Hamdan America taking people now. You can, if you go by the grave of the Prophet and one day we hope that women can have access to all these things as well, inshallah. If you look up, you'll see these green marks. Those green marks tell you where the homes of the wives of the Prophet were, the Hujurat. Because the grave is the, is the, the house of Sayyidah Aisha. So they came to those hujurat in the middle of the night and he said, Inna madhi. He started yelling, Ya Muhammad, Ya Muhammad, started yelling his name. Hey Muhammad, come out, man, it's late. Like that's how you should like contextualize the experience. It wasn't like, oh, Messenger of Allah, we have come from a grand distance. It, it was rough. Hey, Muhammad, come out. We're Banu Tamim. And then they got upset. Uh, so Al-Qa'qa is reported to us, said, Inna madhi zayyin. That when I praise somebody, it beautifies them. It's like a threat now to the Prophet. 
And when I insult somebody, it, it brings about them evil and a bad omen. So he also mentions like shirk, man. These guys are wild, man. Who are they saying that to? Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Other narration, which is a little bit more sanitized, says that they just yelled his name. So Allah revealed this verse about that situation. Allah said, those people who call you from behind your houses, they're dumb. Like, they have no sense. And if they had had resilience, if we learn the importance of a student of knowledge, has to be resilient. Once, subhanAllah, we went to study hadith with a shaykh in Egypt. We traveled a long way to his house. Sheikh wasn't there, man. And took a train. And I was upset, man. I was mad. Said, man, Sheikh told us to come. He's not here. And then one of the brothers, he said to me, you know, but think about what you learned about yourself. You know what I mean? That you're so frustrated. Like, think about what it's taught you about who you are. I said, subhanAllah, I need to work on my resilience. Allahumma sabirna sabra ayub. So Allah says, وَلَوْ أَنَّهُمْ sabaru." If they had just been patient. حَتَّى تَخْرُجَ إِلَيْهِمْ Until you had come out to them. لَكَانَ خَيْرًا لَهُمْ It would have been better for them. وَاللَّهُ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ And that takes us to the first point, why the verse was sent. But two other points. Even though he made that mistake, Al-Qa'qa'a. Who later on chose him to be a leader? Abu Bakr, man, the idea of redemption. We don't let people make mistakes in our community, man. We don't let people fail. We don't let people slip. We've created a very uncomfortable religious community. We're like the Khawarij, man. You make a mistake, you're done. So you see people going through tough marriages. And they come to me and they're like, you know, I think we're going to get divorced, but don't tell anybody. But who should you turn to in a time of a failing marriage? Your faith community. If people's children are giving them a hard time or if their parents are having some challenges, the last place that Muslims will turn when they're faced to deal with the realities of being a human being is their own religious community. But that's where they should come. And we should love them. We should help them. We should care about them. We should support them. Because even though Al Qa'a says, Inna madhi zayyin wa dhammi shayyin, said to the Prophet, When I praise you, it's all good, it's all gravy. But if I get at you, it's over with. That's the feeling of what he said. If you really wanted to translate the meaning of it, still Abu Bakr says, Man, this dude is a good leader, man. Because Abu Bakr has insight. Now, one of our youth, they make a mistake. Our children make a mistake. Man, get the guillotine, man. Off with your head, Alice in Wonderland. Whereas Islam believes in redemption. 
And that's something we have to think about as we move through the future of America, man. America is in a really weird place right now. And some of these people are going to realize the mistakes they made siding with Trump. And we're going to demand justice from them, but we got to give them also the opportunity for redemption. Even Abu Sufyan is given the opportunity of redemption. His wife is given the opportunity of redemption. They killed Hamza. Allah. Allah said, if they repent and they get right, they're your brothers and sisters in faith. Redemption. One of the beautiful qualities of Islam is a quality of redemption. We have a lot of Muslims, man, out there in the streets. If you meet them, they're great people. And if you ask them, man, why don't you come to the community? Oh, brother, man, I messed up, man, in my marriage. Oh, man, I messed up with my family. Oh, I smoked some weed. Oh, I did this. I was on Tinder. Whatever, man. I know Allah will never forgive me. How could you say Allah will never forgive you? When Imam Ibn Ta'ala said, there is no sin greater than Allah's Rahmah. And that's why he says in the Hikam, if you feel destroyed by your sins, remember the transcendent mercy of Allah. And if you feel lazy by your evil, remember his severity and punishment. Al-Khawf al-Raja. Fear and hope, man. The last point we take from this verse is very important for communities to think about. And parents and imams and content providers and students of knowledge like myself. And that is that we are not a monolithic community. Not everybody wears a thobe. Not everybody wears hijab. Not everybody has a long beard. Not everybody has their pants above their ankles, man. That's just life. But do we deal with each other the same way? What did Banu Tamim do? Like if you really wanted just to encapsulate what they did, what the problem was, what did they do? Hmm? They disrespected the Prophet. What did Abu Bakr and Omar do? The same thing. They raised their voice in front of the Messenger of Allah, and Banu Tamim raised their voices in front of the Messenger of Allah. But were they dealt with the same way? What does Allah say about Abu Bakr and Omar? You two better get it together. You're cruising for a bruising. You better get it together. If you don't get it together, I'm going to cancel all your good deeds. And that's why Abu Bakr and Omar were like, Ya Rasulullah, Ya Messenger of Allah. But Banu Tamim, what does Allah say to them? Wallahu ghafoorun rahim. Don't worry about it, man. Allah is forgiving. Two different outcomes for the same mistake teaches us something very important about our religion that demands that we be complex and nuanced and strategic in how we engage people. And we don't like that because as Ahmad Didat said, to make people think is to make them hate you. You know, to push people to invest in thinking. But Abu Bakr and Omar dealt with severely. Banu Tamim, they're no Muslims. They haven't even embraced Islam. They're still like coming around. 
Allah says to them, what? No problem, man. Allah is forgiving and merciful. Don't do it again. So we learn something. How do we deal with new Muslims? How do we deal with Muslims in America that have been dealing with 250 years of historic, systemic, structural, economic trauma? How do we deal with the new immigrants who come to America and are trying to make their way into the community and, and understand what it means to be in this country? How do, how do we deal with young American Muslims who may be feeling the pressure of Islamophobia? We have to be much more strategic. So Sheikh Muhammad Ghazali, rahimahullah, he said this verse teaches us that Muslims should be treated differently based on their realities. And the intention, of course, is to help people grow in their relationship with faith, to inspire them to have a better relationship with Allah. So we finish now the first five verses. The first five verses talk about etiquette with God and the, His Messenger. And then the last verse begins to introduce where we're going to head next is etiquette with the believers. And the first is, we're not a monolith. We're not a monolithic community. We all come with our own challenges, man, and our own successes. So let's just review quickly the first verses we said. First verse were four, five points that we made. Right? We talked about um, the Qur'an as an everlasting miracle and as a relevant text. We talked about what does it mean to put something in front of God and His Messenger. We talked about the idea of Ihsan, worshiping Allah as though we see Him. We talked about why the verse was sent. We talked about the interpretive principle used in Aqidah when we come across attributes of God that are similar to His creation. The second verse, we talked about the status of the Prophet we talked about etiquette with the Prophet We talked about takfir. We talked about some people are just naturally loud. And there are times when being loud is commendable. Number three, we talked about verse three. One of the reasons or wisdoms of test and trial is to purify us. Imam Ibn Taymiyyah said the greatest blessing of Allah is that he tests you to the point that you have no one to turn to except Allah. SubhanAllah. He said that's a blessing. In the fourth and fifth verse, we talked about why the verse was revealed. Al-Qa'qa, we said what his line of, his bars that he dropped in front of the Prophet's house at night. Inna madhi zayin wa inna dhammi shayin. We talked about the idea of resilience and seeking knowledge and patience. And then we talked about an important point in engaging people. And that takes us now into the second part, inshallah that people are not monolithic. So we'll come back, inshallah, after a short break. Inshallah, people are going to eat some pizza and hang out. And we ask Allah to bless us and bless you. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam to see Katira. 15 minutes. Yeah, let's try to keep it 15 minutes because we want to have much time.